Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And... If we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. All right. We are talking about loose leash walking today. You guys asked for it. So here it is. I have dogs that walk pretty nicely on leash. Um, For the most part, they are walked off leash and I do recommend a lot of off leash freedom as a part of good leash manners, but I do recognize that people's dogs need to be on leash sometimes and when they need to be on leash, they need to not be dragging their person around. And a huge part of my success in this area, I think, is how aware I am of pulling. The reason being, it's very painful to me if a dog pulls me on leash. I have some chronic orthopedic problems that create um, a cascade of pain anytime a dog, you know, pulls hard on me on a leash. And so I joke sometimes that I'm the one wearing the prong collar um, and that I feel the dog's pulling so, so much. It's so painful to me that I am hyper aware of it, which means that I work very, very hard to prevent it. And I work very hard to have my dog's never have pulling be reinforced for them. And that's all just about my personal life experience. There are plenty of people whose dogs pull them pretty much all the time and it's not a big deal to them. If you're one of those people, don't worry about it. But if you are one of the people who would like a looser leash, but you maybe don't have some serious pain issues that cause leash pulling to be a major problem for you, you want to key into that awareness piece because being aware of when the leash is tight is where you have to start. And I find that most people are not aware of it until the dog's really pulling them hard. And that's a huge problem because dogs have no way of knowing that this much pulling is fine and this much pulling is not fine. It has to be you're either not allowed to pull ever or you are allowed to pull. So the first thing to think about is that you are probably pulling on your dog just as much as they're pulling on you. It's very important to use your other forms of communication to not use leash pressure to communicate to your dog to turn or to stop pulling, etc. So that leash pressure is just not a way that you guys talk to each other. Leash pressure is simply something the dog should understand to yield to, which I will talk about rather than something that you use on purpose to kind of drag them around because as soon as you drag them around, you're just opening the door for them to drag you around. So 
that awareness piece is really important and being aware of the fact that you are also pulling them is equally important. There are different ways to reinforce loose leash walking. We can utilize a functional reinforcer, meaning the dog is simply allowed to keep walking if the leash is loose. I'm going to mess that up. I'm sure of it. Um, so that would be a functional reinforcer. You could also use a classic reinforcer like food um, or even a toy to reinforce loose leash walking. They are going to get you different results though typically. So if you'd like the dog to be pretty keyed into you and walking close by or in a loose heel position, food is going to be a great bet for you. I want my dogs to be doing whatever they want to do, just not pulling me. So my only um, kind of criterion is that the leash is kept slack. Because of that, I tend to utilize a functional reinforcer more. Now, I train the components of this with food, meaning I train the dog to yield to leash pressure with food. And I train the dog to follow me and be aware of where I am with food. I teach them that they will only be allowed to move forward on a loose leash by simply never allowing them to move forward on a tight one, as well as some other protocols that I'm gonna to talk to you about. That means that I'm use, using that functional reinforcer of getting to go on the walk primarily. Use anti-pull devices, you guys, when you're not gonna have that hyper-awareness. So if you want to just go on a walk with your dog, put them on some kind of device that makes it harder for them to pull. Just pick your poison, I don't care which one you're gonna use. There are plenty of them on the market to choose from, ranging from very mild to relatively painful um, or uncomfortable. So you need to pick the one that you're comfortable with and that works for you and use them anytime. You are not gonna have that hyper-awareness that you need to have to get this done. Because if you let the dog pull, sometimes you aren't gonna get to your end goal. It has to be a black and white, never on a tight leash will you move forward type of relationship, or this will not be effective. I'm gonna give you an example. Um, my partner and I, between us, have seven dogs. Her five dogs will drag her on a leash um, anytime they're attached to her on a leash, they pull. I joke that she's got, you know, Border Collie sled team led by an Aussie. The second the leash is attached to me, they walk with a slack leash. And the reason is they've simply never been allowed to pull me ever. Um, when they try to, they're met with a brick wall. They are not, they do not get to pull me forward. They learn it so fast that is like an instantaneous uh, difference if you take the leash from her and hand it to me. This is again because of my pain issues. I'm hyper aware of pulling. Leslie doesn't have the same pain issues, so she's not hyper aware of pulling and it's fine and it's not that big of a deal to her. She will use a gentle leader on her dogs when they need to not pull and that's perfectly fine. So understand that anytime you aren't gonna be hyper aware, you need to put them on a no pull device so you can just kind of move on with your life and enjoy your walk. And that's perfectly, perfectly fine to do. The biggest problem that people run into is that they lump. They ask the dog to walk on a loose leash for five miles down a fascinating, fascinating trail 
on day one of their training plan when in reality they should do their five miles off leash or on a long line or on a no pull device and then for the final quarter mile to the car work on loose leash walking you have to split just like with everything else or you will not be successful asking your dog to hang out in a crate ringside at agility class before he even can hang out you know in a crate in the car outside of agility class is lumping and will lead to lack of success. Expecting your dog to walk on a loose leash right out the gate immediately the first walk that you take them on and it's very exciting and interesting and they haven't been exercised is lumping and you will not be successful. So you need to build upon success. Failure is not how this gets done. I train all my prerequisite skills, like yielding to leash pressure before I ever head out to try to teach this. I also tend to teach it right away to puppies because puppies don't pull as bad when they're a certain age. They kind of start pulling around five to six months of age. Um, Before then, they usually don't, kind of depending on breed, but mine tend not to. So a few mechanical um, things. First of all, if you're holding onto the leash and when the dog pulls, your arm bungees out from your body. So your arm extends out away from your body and your dog buys herself another two feet or so from pulling, you are shooting yourself in the foot. I'm gonna call that bungee arm. You want to keep your arm anchored to your core. So you hold the end of your leash and you anchor that to your core. So that remember when I said that the dogs are met with a brick wall when they pull? That's what I mean. You anchor the leash to your body. You watch the dog's behavior because again, that awareness, that hypervigilance is key. When you see that they're about to pull, you anchor yourself and you plant your feet. That way they're met with that brick wall. I had this revelation years and years and years ago, um, honestly, close to probably 15 to 17 years ago. Um, I was on a camping trip and my sister had a lab mix who was a bad puller and he, she tied him to a tree so we could collect firewood or whatever. And I watched as he did not pull on the tree. And then the second she was holding the leash, he was dragging her everywhere. And I went, oh, there's that. He knows the tree won't move. So he doesn't pull on it. Be that tree. Anchor your feet, um, steady yourself, anchor the leash on your body, and do not allow the dog to move you with a tight leash. Very, very important. If you do it after they've already pulled you for two or three steps, you're screwed. It's not gonna work for you. So again, you guys, hypervigilance, hyperawareness. If you're not there, this isn't gonna get done, at least with my methodology, it's not. So you're going to need to also deliver a warning cue. So you're gonna anchor, you see them begin to pull. You see them on their way to pulling. That's when you anchor yourself and then I give them a little warning cue that means you're about to hit a brick wall. I say, hey, dog hits the brick wall. As soon as the dog turns and acknowledges me, we go in a different direction. I prefer a genuine direction change rather than um, backing up or turning around or just kind of doing a 180 and then turning around again as soon as I have decided that I want to go back the direction I had intended to go. I will go the new direction for a considerable period of time, basically until the dog pulls is going to pull again. I'm going to change directions every single time. I think that what this helps the dog kind of understand is that you are trying to communicate to him a direction change with that, hey, rather than you're about to pull, you're about to hit a brick wall, it's, hey, we're going the other direction. And then this becomes a sustainable communication system. When your dog is no longer pulling you, 
but you don't want to communicate via leash pressure because that damages this work you've done, you give the dog that warning signal anytime you are going to change direction rather than communicating via leash pressure. So it's nice and sustainable. It is so, so important that you do that genuine direction change because otherwise the dog can get really wise to this really fast. Um, and they can just kind of hit their leash, change direction, change direction again. I, I see them start to kind of tune you out um, on that front if you're just trying to do a back and forth type of situation. So the prerequisite skills that you're going to want to teach are uh, yield to leash pressure. And I'm going to share videos of these things over on Patreon. But basically, I clip a leash on the dog. I usually do this more on a collar because I'm very, very um, adamant that my dogs never pull into a collar and I want them to yield to collar pressure for other reasons as well. And I just pull into the collar when the dog gives in, I click and treat. It's very simple and I do it until they can actually walk backwards into the collar pressure, that kind of thing. Then I'm going to put them on a harness and a leash and I'm going to do the same thing, but there's going to be a little more motion involved. So I'm going to put a tiny bit of pressure on when the dog yields to that pressure, I'm going to click and treat. All of this will be over in Patreon. You also can start out teaching the dog to care about the direction you're going by walking backwards with them. So you're walking backwards and they're looking up and following you along. You click and treat, you turn and go forward a few steps, repeat. That way the dog is actually on a walk with you rather than both of you trying to go in different directions, pulling on each other, having this tug of war fight. So I hope that was helpful for you guys. Um, I hope that if you're on Patreon, you will watch those videos and ask questions and make some suggestions about obviously future episodes like this one was suggested on Patreon as well. Okay, I've got some Patreon questions for you. This one comes from Elizabeth. She says, the house across the street diagonally from ours has a reactive dog with an underground electric fence. When people walk by on the street, she charges up to the boundary while barking, which is about seven to eight feet away from the street. My dog is currently on some restricted activity, which is why this is now an issue as we're doing frequent short on-leash walks instead of our normal off-leash decompression walks. When my dog is on-leash in our front yard for some sniffing time or to potty, the dog charges and barks at someone else. My dog ignores her. That's fantastic. Um, she goes on to say, my question is about how to handle the hopefully rare times that my dog is closer to this dog. Yesterday, we were walking on the opposite side of the street when the dog came charging out of her house and up to the boundary. My adolescent golden stopped walking and looked with her tail gently wagging. I let her look until she oriented back to me and chose to continue walking. Was that the right approach? Is there anything I should or shouldn't do to help my dog handle the situation if it happens again? I'm currently taking measures to avoid as much as possible. We walk the other way down the street or sometimes I'll put her in the car and go elsewhere for our short walk. Elizabeth, thanks for your question. I'm sorry that you are having to deal with this. Um, just one of the many reasons that I have kind of a bad taste in my mouth about that kind of fencing system. Um, but all right, I shouldn't call it a fencing system truly because there's no fence, but anyway, <laughs> moving forward. Yes, you are responding really well. Um, you're doing a lot of things right. So number one, you are avoiding the issue as much as possible because you know it's temporary, which is always a good thing to do. Um, it's also not inherently safe. Dogs breach barriers all the time like that. Sometimes when they do breach the barrier, they feel the shock and they take that out on whatever it is that they were charging. Um, that's definitely been something I've, I've observed in my career. So you wanna be careful and do stay away from that dog. Um, putting her in the car and going elsewhere for your short walk, also good. Even if you just drove 
a little down the street so you're not wasting too much time just getting past that house and then walking from there is an idea. You don't necessarily like have to go to a park that is 15, 20 minutes away, etc. Your dog is responding so beautifully. And so what I would do is what you're doing, which is stop, allow the dog to take in what's happening, allow the dog to choose to disengage from what's happening, which is exactly what your dog is doing and then feed your dog really well as you walk on so that your dog understands that her behavior earned her some food in that situation and that that's exactly what you're looking for. The other thing that I'm gonna tell you you might do, which um, is guaranteed to get me some angry responses from people. So let me just head that off and say, if this doesn't feel like the right thing to do for you, then please don't do it. But I'm actually aware, well aware of every potential risk with what I'm about to say. And so you don't need to email me about those risks um, is that I would throw food at the charging dog. So dog is charging you, reach into your bait bag, pull out something really good like fresh pet or something like that and chuck a handful straight at the dog. Um, I talked about in a previous podcast that I do this with a bulldog that will charge us in the neighborhood across the street that we sometimes walk in. That dog's not on an invisible fence. He's not on the, behind a fence at all. Um, and he's charging and I got in the habit of just chucking a meatball at him and he stopped barking. He's still approaching me because he wants the meatball, I believe. It has changed his reason for approaching. So you would actually be doing this dog a favor by changing the reason that she's charging. You're not gonna change her charging behavior at everybody, but hopefully you could change it at you if you have to. Now, that's not something I would set out to do on purpose, but it is something I would do if the dog happens to charge you and you're close enough to throw food across that barrier. So again, if you're close enough to throw food across the barrier, I don't want the dog to feel, I don't want the dog to breach the barrier to get the food. And if the dog is charging you, so it's kind of a get out of dodge situation, just reach into your bait bag and chuck a handful and then turn to your dog and feed her several times as you walk away. Next one comes from Carrie. What are your thoughts on the statement that spending too long slash building too much reinforcement history on one approximation of a behavior will make the next approximation of that behavior harder to accomplish versus if I'm dealing with a behavior chain, don't I always want to be confident that the final behaviors in the chain are extremely fluent? This is a meaty question, so don't worry, you guys. I'm going to give you some background so you all understand this question. Um, she goes on to give an example. I have trained a pretty decent calm, still dumbbell hold in front position with my dog. Next, I think I want him to take the dumbbell while he's just a step away from front position and then move into front. We seem to be struggling a little with this. Have I spent too long on the previous step or is this basically a splitting problem? So a few things going on. I'm gonna put your question a little bit into layman's terms for everybody first. So what Carrie's asking is in a shaping procedure, if we stay on one approximation or one kind of stair step of our final behavior. So if our final behavior is at the top of the staircase, if we stay too long on one stair step, it makes it harder to step onto the next step. And that's absolutely true. Um, she's asking if that is what's coming into play here with building her behavior chain. The difference is that a behavior chain ideally is several fluent links that are linked together. So rather than, <clears throat> excuse me, rather than it being 
an actual shaping procedure with the stair steps um, leading to your final behavior, you're trying to link two behaviors together, but you're trying to treat it a little bit like a shaping procedure. So that's more your issue. Um, what I would do is say, I need to build fluency in the step that is failing. So the piece of the chain that is failing. So if the dog doesn't know how to walk towards you with the dumbbell, even one step, you need to back up and train that piece of the chain. So, um, keep laying reinforcement history into your terminal part of the chain, which is the front but also build a reinforcement history for every other piece of the chain. So I hope that makes sense, Carrie. If it doesn't, shoot me another question and I will dive back into it. And you guys, if you didn't understand that question, make sure that you bring it up for me over in Patreon. All right, last one for this week. Amy says, we have issues getting to the car. When it's time to go, my pup will just sit and stare at me like she can't hear me. She is building a really great off-leash recall and I always have currency with me so she knows she will get paid, but this doesn't seem to translate to going from house to car. I can call her, come on, all day, and she will just stare at me. When she was smaller, if she didn't want to come, I would just scoop her up and we would go, but she is approaching a weight that it will be not possible for me to do that any longer. Once we are out the front door, she does okay getting herself off the porch and to the car. Sometimes I have to call her uh, so she will come off the porch. Then when she is at the car door, I will typically lift her into the car and clip her in. I don't know if it's a fear of the front door or the screen door, but she doesn't mind approaching them when someone is coming in, only when she's being asked to go out the front door. So Amy, you've given me a lot of information um, about the dog. She's got a recall. She doesn't seem to actually be afraid of the front door. She seems to just be averse to getting into the car. So the first thing I'm gonna tell you to do is stop using your recall cue there especially if you intend to put her in the car no matter what she does, right? So you're doing two things. You're poisoning your recall cue, but you are also damaging this kind of choice-based relationship that I want your dog to have uh, with you. So when we give them a choice, which is what we are doing when we give them a cue, you guys. So anytime you go, come on, get in the car, you are giving them a choice. Um, if you have trained something with positive reinforcement, it is a choice. And I don't wanna give them a choice if they don't have one. So anytime your dog has to get in the car, do not even begin to discuss it with her. Take her directly to the car. Don't pick her up anymore because that's not sustainable. Take her by the collar and take her to the car. Be gentle about it. You know, you don't need to be a jerk. You don't need to be a tyrant. I don't think you are. Um, and take her directly to the car and put her in and clip her in. You can give her an I'm sorry cookie after you do that if you want to. I sometimes do, I sometimes don't. It's what you're looking at is the conflict that builds when you say you have a choice to the dog and they choose no, and then you revoke the choice and put them and do the thing anyway. So that's what you're seeing is that conflict. Now, I also want you to investigate why she doesn't want to get in the car. So will she get in the car gladly away from home is one question I have. So if you're done with a walk, will she load into the car happily or does she hesitate there too? Or do you not know because she's always on a leash and so you have not built this conflict relationship into that. Sometimes dogs get car sick, puppies especially. Sometimes she might hate the harness that you're clipping her into. You know, these are all pieces to explore. You wanna make sure that she's not getting car sick. So is she salivating a little bit or looking like just she's got 
got a general malaise in the back seat. Um, you know, those can all be signs of car sickness, not just vomiting. Um, there's There can certainly be nausea without vomiting. And nausea, as we all know, is extremely unpleasant. And so it, dogs will want to avoid a situation in which they have learned that they are nauseated. And if that is true, if that is what you're experiencing, you need some veterinary help. You need some anti-nausea meds to help you get through this. If it is the clip of the seatbelt, pull that out and counter condition that piece. So pull that out and teach her that that clip of the seatbelt equals good things for dogs. So let me know, try those steps, Amy, and I definitely come on over on Patreon and give me an update. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.